Welcome back to the Middle of Culture. I'm one of your hosts, Eden. And I'm your other host, Peter. Hey, Peter. How you been? You know, I've been okay. Um, yeah, just kind of getting through the week this last week and getting through another one. And then I'll be off call come, oh gosh, Monday the 29th or something like that. So that'll be nice. But yeah, oh, how yeah, you been? That'll be really nice. Uh, dead. It's been <laughs> so cold here. Oh, seriously? It's been like negative 17 feels like negative 45. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's been yeah. real rough. Um, that was That'd just this morning. Um, oh, God. Yeah, it was It was to such a degree the last few days, like, you know, real feel of like negative 30, negative 40, that there was a day earlier this week where I went outside, I was letting the dogs out, it was like noon or whatever, and I was just in gym shorts and my flip-flops. And I was like, oh my God, it's so balmy and nice out here. And so I like started to like shovel. We also got like a foot and a half of snow in the last oh week and a half gosh. or so. It was actually over the course of about three days, we got like a foot and a half of snow. It was a lot. And then it's been so cold that like none of it has melted. So it's all just Jeez. like piled up everywhere. Um, so, you know, I was like, whoa, this, this was maybe Tuesday of this last week. I was like, that's so mm -hmm. balmy. So I like started to shovel a little bit, uh, of the stuff off of our patio that I have literally just not messed with at all because mm -hmm. it's just too cold to be outside. And I was like, oh, it's positively pleasant. And then I came inside and looked at the temperature and it was like 17 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and so it had just been so cold that a high of 17 was like, oh, Just this is great. so pleasant. So That's funny. thankfully, thankfully the cold is breaking by oh, in the next couple of days. We're supposed to be get up to like almost 40. So I'm excited for that. It, uh, it got cold here, but not that cold. It was down in the like, oh, negative single negative digits overnight. And you know, this is Idaho. It, it it doesn't feel much colder than it really is because it's so dry. Um, yeah. But with that being that cold, um, last, gosh, I guess it was last Saturday morning, I went to do a load of laundry and the, you know, I threw it in, started the washer, walked away, came back, and it had some weird error code. And oh, I no. did a little quick Google search to see what the error code was. And it turns out that the error code is it's basically the washing machine isn't getting enough water. Oh, no. And I'm like, what's going on? And it's not that big a deal. Basically, what happens, what happened, uh, as best I can put it together, is the um, the back wall of where the washer and dryer and the little kind of walk through laundry room from the garage is faces the garage. So the opposite side of that is the garage. Uh-huh. And we tend to leave the garage door cracked about six inches so that the cat can get in and out. Sure. And go wander around if he wants, but come in and we've got, you know, a little infrared heater and everything where his house is. So it's plenty warm where he is but that doesn't go very far. And so it was cold enough that with that cracked and everything, the line, the water going to the washer froze. Oh no. So basically I was just like waiting and waiting. And I think it was Wednesday 
it finally warmed up enough. I got home from work, hurrying through the washer on a tub wash cycle just to see if it would run. And boy, oh boy, I tell you, I almost cried tears of joy when I could hear the water spraying into the, to the washing machine. I so, bet. Uh, everything's better in the world. And I think the other thing that happened because it's, we've, it's gotten cold before and that hasn't happened. Again, I think it was a combination of the, you know, having the door cracked, it was pretty windy. So, you know, wind was blowing in and, and it was really, it was really cold in the garage, but then because it's most of the time, just Gareth and I here, we're not doing a lot of laundry. Oh, sure. Cause it's just two, and so, two people. Yeah. So as opposed to like when Lisa was here and when Alex was here and then even when Aubrey and Jess, you know, there were enough people that like every day there were loads of laundry being done. Sure. But you know, Liz didn't come home. And so it's like, we do a load of laundry. You know, I do a couple loads once a week and Gareth does a couple loads once a week. So we hadn't done any laundry in four or five days. Sure. But it's working now and you know, it's warmed up. It's, it's raining today. It's like 41 degrees and, and yeah, so it nice. is, uh, definitely has warmed up here. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, uh, what you been checking out? You've been seeing anything fun? Um, not a whole lot. I, I still am working on the wheel of time. One of these days I'll be able to tell people that I've finally finished it <laughs> in book 14. So I'm in the home stretch. I can see the, I can see the end of the tunnel. Uh, I, I am enjoying it. it there it's good now. Um, and then I've had a little bit of free time, uh, a couple days after work. And so I've still been kind of chipping away at Starfield, even though I don't think it's a great game. I feel invested enough right now that it's not that I don't enjoy my time with it. I just, you know, it, it's not pulling me back in a lot, but I did play it some this week <clears throat> and was reminded of the fact that Bethesda just makes buggy, buggy games because I think three separate times I was playing and I just had a full, just crashed to desktop. No good reason. And yeah. so basically I'd play for like 30 minutes and then I'd get a crash to desktop. And then I was like, okay, guess that's a sign that uh, I'm done for today. And, yeah. and, you know, come back a couple of days later. So that's really about it, honestly. Well, that's fun. Yeah. What about uh, you? I what mean, you been checking out? I, I keep thinking you should play a better game, but also I can't judge that much. Sometimes you just play a game <laughs> that's mid and that's fine. Well, you know, again, as we've kind of talked about, and I do, I recognize that it's a little silly, but part of it is I am having a difficult time choosing what game I want to get into. That I understand. So in the midst of not knowing exactly what I want to dive into, uh, it's easy to just kind of fire up and basically play Starfield for 30 to 60 minutes until it crashes. And then I walk away and come back another day. There you go. You got it. That is, you know, that the built-in timer lets you know, you know, I do <laughs> however much I want. And then when it's over, it's over. And that's fine. Exactly. So, but what you been up to? Uh, so I, a few things I want to shout out. Um, I will say this is kind of related to what we'll talk about today. Um, I have been watching the Apple TV show, um, 
Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which is a spinoff show set in the legendary MonsterVerse, a.k.a. the legendary pictures uh, kaiju Godzilla universe. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a show that is honestly a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, that's good. Um, I had a really good time with it. I think that the cast was very, very good. Um, and the, the premise was fun and especially the, the split premise, because essentially the show takes place in two timelines, like the early days of setting up Monarch as a, as a, uh, as an organization, which in the, the universe is, they're basically like the monster watchers is this mm-hmm. group called Monarch. And then the not present day because it's set in 2015 but like the the latter day timeline set like immediately following like the year following that first 2014 Godzilla movie mm, um okay. and i think we maybe have mentioned it here but it's worth mentioning again the fun conceit that Kurt and his son Wyatt Russell play the same character one in the past sure. and one in the future um and so, uh, you know, that is a fun conceit, number one. Um, but number two, I just think it's a really solid show. I think it's really Good. fun. Um, it's it, it Because it's a TV show, obviously they don't have the budget for the monsters to be the main attraction. The monsters can only be a fun thing you see sometimes. So they had to really dig in and make things count when it came mm-hmm. to the, uh, the, the people. And I think that they did a good job with it. I had a really fun time with it. Um, I would recommend it to people, but only if you have seen those movies. If you have not watched all of those legendary movies, you'll be lost. Um, At the very least, you need to watch the first Godzilla movie. You could maybe watch this and then catch up with the others, but you got to see that 2014 Gareth Edwards movie, um, if only to have, like, a basis on it. But the more of it you've seen and the more you know of, like, who what monarch is as an institution as as a as an agency all that sort of stuff i think the more fun you'd have with it um but i really liked it i thought it was pretty fun well that's Um, good to hear um just because it's something that i have been wanting to watch but i've been a little hesitant because you know i hear what i would say almost like rumors of mixed reviews the the few podcasts and things that I have listened to where people have actually watched it, everybody seems to enjoy it, but they always make comments about something to the effect of, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It's not perfect, but you know, and the main thing is I hear a lot of, but I don't know why people don't seem to like it. So it's good to hear that you enjoyed it. Uh, Cause it's, it's on the list of things that I want to check out in part just because I pay for Apple TV plus. So I'm like, well, I should watch stuff on there. That's decent. Yeah, no, I I really liked it. Um, I had a really fun time with it. The cast was very good, um, and I liked that there were, like, love triangle situations in both the past and the future timelines and, like, the way that those shook out. And, like, I just thought it was a fun time. I had a very good time with it, and I would really recommend it to people. Excellent. The other show that I watched, I would also recommend... more highly than I would have expected um, at the start. Um, And that is Cassie and I watched this last week the entirety of the new Marvel show, Echo. Oh, okay. 
and it was pretty dang good all told like nice. you could tell you could tell it was a situation where like this is not a big budget thing you could also tell that this was maybe originally planned to be eight episodes and they cut it down to five in the edit. Like you can tell mm. that like there's some stuff that gets a little rushed and a little paper over papered over that. I wish they'd maybe let breathe a little bit more. Sure. But fundamentally I had a really fun time with it. I thought it was a, a, a really game cast, like a very, very good cast of just about every famous native American actor you can think of. Um, I think that um, I was surprised at, you know, I liked Alacua Lopez's uh, portrayal of Echo in the Hawkeye show. We've talked about that mm-hmm. a, a few times on this podcast, how we both really liked that show, had a good time with it. Um, yeah. And I thought that she, Alacua, or not Alacua Lopez, Alacua Cox, her, Maya Lopez is the character's name. I thought Alacua Cox was a very good um, actor and I was excited to see what they were going to do with her. And I think that she really carries that show. And I think that that's just a delightful thing because, like, she'd literally never been in anything until Hawkeye. Right. Yeah. She was literally working in a in an Amazon shipping warehouse. And her friends were like, hey, they want a deaf Native American actor to be in a show. And she was like, I'm not an actor. And then her friends like browbeat her into trying out for it. And now she's got a damn TV show. She is the lead of, which I think is delightful. And she really carries it. Like she makes you care about this character a whole lot. And I really loved how meaningfully her community in the show, like cared enough about her to at least get functional at ASL. And that Mm -hmm. apparently was both true in the show, like between the characters and outside of the show, like the showrunner made the cast or not, didn't make the cast, but many of the cast did, but made the crew learn at least a bit of ASL so that they could work with the lead actor. And I think that that is, I think it's very cool. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was really fun. I, if you've got, four hours because i think it was maybe a little under four hours all told for five episodes it's worth watching i had a really good time with it vincent d'onofrio's back and he's always Mm. chewing scenery as wilson fisk he's great and uh i think it sets up some interesting things for where his character might go in the uh, upcoming daredevil show and i just thought it was quite uh, it was better much better than i thought it was going to be i thought it was really good and it made me think okay you've got this new imprint marvel spotlight and i'm kind of excited to see what you do with it good that's also good to hear because you know gareth and i were talking about this um we still haven't watched loki season two i know that what if season two is out i knew the echo had dropped and to just be really honest with you Secret Invasion was such a steaming pile of shit that I have been completely turned off from anything Marvel related. And I want something to kind of help get me over that. But really, I, I was I was so angry with what a hack job they did with Secret Invasion that it really it it's it's pushed me away from from Marvel for right now. And, and, uh, you know, I, I want something to, to enjoy so that I can, I can kind of get back into it. 
I mean, this might be a good a good avenue for that. You know, I I watched it and then convinced Cassie to watch it with me, um, and she was like, I don't know, and I was like, You've seen most of these actors in Reservation Dogs, which is a show that you like a lot. So like. Mm-hmm let's give one ep a try. And then, you know, we watched the whole thing over the course of a couple of days um, because she was like, oh, we're watching another episode, right? We're watching another episode. And uh, it might be the thing that helps you get over that hump and interested in Marvel stuff again. Even if it is just, this doesn't feel like a Marvel show. It feels tangential to it in a lot of ways because it's street level characters a very loose tie-in to Daredevil and and Hawkeye, but it's very loosey-goosey, and I just had a good time with it. Good. That's awesome. And then the last thing I will mention is, I think I mentioned it last time, but I have continued forward and read all five volumes of I'm in Love with the Villainess, and it was a delight. <laughs> nice. I... I literally spent all day. Anytime I was not in meetings yesterday, I was just reading that book. I read the entirety of volume five yesterday. Nice. Very it good. Got, it got so fucking batshit, dude. Like, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to read this and I doubt any of our listeners are going to read this. So let me you're walk right, you <laughs> down. Let me walk you down a few of the paths that volume five of this series took me down. I've explained before. It's this Isakai story woman office worker woman wakes up and she is the teen protagonist of her favorite video game and makes the ostensible bad guy of that video game fall in love with her and it's beautiful and it ends and volume two ends and it's cute and they've won and they've successfully pulled off a revolution in this uh, aristocratic kingdom and turned it into a democracy and they all survived and then they adopt two orphans and so these like teens who are in love and essentially married have now got these children. And you're like, Oh, that's all sweet. And then they, they it did really well. And so the writer was like, I mean, I'll tell another story. If you guys want me to tell another story. Mm-hmm. And so she told the weirdest, most batshit story she could come up with. And like, <laughs> eventually it turned into, so neither the world where the main character came from nor this magical world are the original real world because in the original real world in the late 21st century humanity had lost the battle against climate change and so these two researchers figured out how to digitize all of humanity's souls have an ai terraform the planet and then create a new society like create bodies in which to implant some souls and then let let you know nature take its course as they implant these digitized souls into the bodies or into the babies as babies are born um until humanity destroys itself again they take all the souls back into the digital realm do the whole thing over again until they have bodies again and alternate it between a magical society and a technological society and a magical society and a technological society and she's do and the the demon queen who you find out is the main character but from the real world has been doing this for literally millions of years until she's lost love with her one true love who was the other scientist who helped create this cycle of rebirth which is obviously the love interest villainess claire but they've she's fallen out of love with her because she keeps reincarnating in these timelines to be with her and she has perfect knowledge of everything that has happened before over the course of millions of years whereas her love interest doesn't and 
guess what? You have an epistemological break if you've got millions of years of memories in your head. So she's decided to destroy the whole world. And so the AI creates a digital version of her and embodies her, which is the protagonist of the book series. And like, it got really weird. It got (laughs) real weird. And I had a delightful time with it. And, uh, It was very cool. I'm really, I was really happy with it. It was one of those things like I finished book five and then I immediately went to the author's coffee page and tossed her 10 bucks because I was like, I know I already bought these books. So you're getting like a little something from me buying these books, but I've had a hell of a time reading the manga and reading these novels over the past few weeks. And you deserve, you know, 10 bucks for that or whatever. There you go. It's been, it was a delight. I, you know, and I've got a new series that's coming um, that has a ridiculous name. Let me pull it up um, and we'll see if it's good or not. I have the first volume is on its way. It'll be here in a couple of days. It's called The Magical Revolution of the Reincarnated Princess and the Genius Young Lady. What a terrible <laughs> title. Uh, that's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> it's They've really gone in on having just ridiculous long names for a lot of this stuff in Japanese um and so we'll see how this one is i'm excited about it it comes highly recommended and uh maybe i'll be able to tell you about that in the next episode excellent but for the rest of this episode it's time for us to pivot and dear listeners you know from listening to the past couple of episodes exactly what we'll be doing here and what we're doing is talking about the seminal 1954 film Godzilla. yes the original godzilla so peter had you ever seen this before? I don't know. I want to say yes, because I do have a memory of one of the final scenes of the movie. Uh-huh. But if I, if I had seen it at some point, it was either not all at once or it was in passing or something to the to the point that you know, I, I didn't remember much. I just remembered that scene near the end. Okay. Okay. I am curious if you had seen the Japanese version or if you had maybe seen the 1956 film, Godzilla King of the Monsters, which for all intents and purposes hits the same plot beats as the 54 movie, but is dubbed and has a bunch of new footage with Raymond Burr, you know, Perry Mason, uh, <laughs> as a an American reporter who is in Tokyo as all these things are happening. So he becomes kind of the POV character for you as the American viewer. Um, and it's, again, the basic plot beats are all the same, but the vibe is incredibly different in the American version, Godzilla King of the Monsters. And I think it's, I, I still really like it. I think it's a very cool, fun movie, especially to see how seamlessly they, especially for being in the 50s, they seamlessly edit in this entire story about Raymond Burr's character as if he were there when it was mm. all being filmed. But dog, he was never in Japan. They filmed that shit in Los Angeles. That's and kind just, of really interesting. And just splice it into the Japanese film alongside dubbing it. And you'd be surprised how well it works. It really does work quite well. 
in terms of being a coherent meaning, like a film with meaning, but dog, it does not have the feeling that this movie has. So, so let me ask you a question then, because I yeah. think this will answer <clears throat> for me and, and anyone who may be listening and, um, just warning everybody, we're going to spoil a I mean, we're gonna 70 sp- year old movie. <laughs> I was going to say this movie is 69 and a half years old. We're going to spoil the shit out of it. If you haven't seen it, you <laughs> so, should go correct. watch Godzilla. It's a good you movie. Should. Um, so the, que- the scene in the, the thing that all of a sudden triggered this memory mm-hmm. was the oxygen destroyer as Godzilla is sinking to the ocean and then you get that transition to his skeleton. Yeah. So is that in the Raymond Burr? It is. Yeah. That scene is largely untouched. Then most likely that is what I saw at some point on PBS growing up as a kid. I mean, that's the film that I had on VHS when I was a kid that mom got me from the Avon catalog was the, yeah, Raymond Burr version. So maybe you saw it while I was watching it, or maybe you saw it on PBS, but that's more likely than not what you would have seen if you'd have seen it back then. Yeah. So that's my guess is that that's probably what I have seen as long as that scene is the same, because that was the scene that I was like, okay, I know I have seen this. It, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, so then my question is, how did you find this movie? What did you think about it as, as, as you watched it? We can kind of go over, uh, n- basic ideas, how we felt about it, especially, you know, it was a month ago that we went and saw minus one, which in a lot of ways, especially now that I'm sure as you've seen this one, minus one is explicitly doing a lot of echoes to this exact oh, film. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so how did you find this as you watched it? What did you think about it? So, and I don't want, I don't think I would say that this surprised me. Sure. But I have a memory of some of the later Godzilla movies, especially once they've been dubbed, being super goofy. Oh, yeah. And there's some shit, especially in the late Showa era, like, where Godzilla curls into a ball and uses his atomic breath to fly through the sky or like <laughs> coasts on his tail so that he can double foot kick a bad guy that Jet Jaguar, the huge android, is holding. So like it gets extremely goofy by even by the early mid Showa era. That's not this movie. This movie is not goofy. Well, and that was one of the things that really struck me is again, having these kind of, you know, short little memories tucked in the back of my head that, oh, Hey, those old Godzilla movies are super goofy and silly. And I don't think that I expected this to be going in, but to the degree to which this movie is not goofy and silly and is, very, I mean, to me, it came across as it is a very serious movie. This is, it is, it is a drama. It is, oh, it is a straight up drama movie that one of the, that the principal source of drama is this massive monster and it takes itself very seriously and it treats the characters and the story with the gravity that befits a serious drama movie. 
Absolutely. And, and so I was very impressed at that. And it kind of reframed a little bit my thinking of Godzilla because, again, as we've talked about, I haven't seen very many Godzilla movies, but have been tangentially aware of Godzilla for many, many years, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and so kind of having this idea that had not fully formed in my head, but formed as I was watching this movie that I think somewhere in there, I thought that the 2014, you know, the legendary monster movies was kind of a, Oh, let's take Godzilla and let's make it more serious and understanding that no guys, they, they they already did that. They took Godzilla and they made a serious movie back at the very beginning. The very first time they made a Godzilla movie was a, I think was an important reframing of the character and the series as a whole to some degree. And then bookending that experience again with Godzilla and then Godzilla minus one um, a month or so ago. And as you mentioned, it really, to me, honestly, it made Godzilla minus one a better movie. A movie that I enjoyed even more because I was able to look at it and go, okay, um, The Force Awakens was a fun Star Wars movie in lots of ways because of the way it recalled A New Hope. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a good movie. No. But, but you know, there was at least that. And then Godzilla Minus One was kind of, again, like a sort of you know, them kind of going, Hey, hold my beer. Let me show you how it's done. And making a movie with a lot of callbacks that is obviously an homage to the original Godzilla movie in a lot of ways and sort of the, some of the themes and the tone and that sort of thing, but still feels like it stands on its own while being entirely respectful and because of how respectful it felt to me, almost really kind of showing a degree of gratitude to the work that was done 69 and a half years ago. Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I've seen this movie multiple times, but I probably haven't seen it in a decade. I, I have sat down and watched, you know, I have the big Criterion box set of all of the Showa era films. Which again, if anyone is interested in Godzilla and wants to spend 150, the best 150 bucks you could spend if you are interested in these movies at all, is to get that Criterion collection because it is <laughs> this gorgeous box, this gorgeous big like coffee table sized book that has gorgeous bespoke art for each of the 15 Showa era films, and has you know. Uh, Uh, like a short essay on each one of the films. And then it's a criterion collection thing. So it's filled with as many special features as they could possibly, you know, jam into these things. And, uh, you know, I have gone through most of that box set. I have not watched all of it yet. I, you know, destroy all monsters is not a very good movie. So I haven't gotten back around to watching that one again yet, but I also Mm -hmm. hadn't gotten around to watching this original Godzilla film probably in a decade or so. So rewatching it last night, like you said, just really reframed a lot of the ways that I was thinking about minus one and, and where I was like, Oh man, it really did take things serious in a way. Like you said, I, I having seen all of them, I know that they can take this serious turn more often than not. 
Sure. Return of Godzilla in 84 is a more serious film. Godzilla 19, Godzilla 2000, a more serious film. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All at Attack, despite having the stupidest fucking name, is one of the <laughs> most serious and like meaningful and pensive of these Godzilla movies. So I know they can do it. But like... I had forgotten how well they fucking did it out the gate yeah. the first time. This is, like you said, a drama that has tinges of horror and thriller. And like, you know, we talked about how in Minus One when he comes up and the people are staring at him in horror at the devastation he's causing. How you're like, I had to just look at it gobsmacked too. This movie does the same fucking thing. He comes mm -hmm. aboard. He comes out of the water and you are on the edge of your seat watching him destroy everything, watching him just like atomic breath, a street full of people and watching them all collapse to the ground in flames. And you're like, damn, man, they just like hit it out the gate. The first chance. Yeah. It's a really cool movie. And then they followed it up with a really bad one. Six months later. <laughs> Which is wild to me, but we don't need to talk about that right now. Um, so, you know, I know that your son, uh, Gareth, watched this with you. How he did, did he seem to enjoy it? I think or he how did you feel it. about it? Uh, he definitely enjoyed it. And again, you know, one of the reasons we, inside baseball here, folks, we're recording this a couple days late because Gareth specifically wanted to be able to watch it with me. Now, he absolutely was like, huh. That's an old movie. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and you can, you can tell that, you know, I kind of said to him, I was like, yeah, you can tell this movie was made, you know, in 1954, the pacing is very different than move, most movies tend to be these days and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think it was a really cool experience for him to, again, having seen Godzilla minus one with me to be able to go back and look at it and say, okay, this is the roots of this character because again, and even if you haven't seen a single Godzilla movie, I think it is impossible for someone in the year 2024 to not be familiar with Godzilla. Sure. I think it is. Godzilla has permeated the social consciousness so much to the point that I think pretty much anyone is familiar with Godzilla. And so I think he really kind of enjoyed that opportunity to get that exposure, to get that understanding, to see where this cultural icon got his start. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think he, he thought it was kind of cool. Again, it was a little slow for him. It was yeah. a little, you know, pacing's a little off and that sort of thing. But, um, but I mean, it held his attention and, and he was interested in the whole thing. And, and, you know, we had a good little conversation about it when it was all said and done. Well, I'm glad he enjoyed it. All right. Yeah, we're going to do, we'll do a quick, like last time, quick recap of what happens in this movie in case you haven't seen it and you're still listening and want to know what happens. And then we can talk a little bit more about specific details. So very similar to minus one. Some boats get destroyed. People are like, what is happening to these boats? Some reporters go to Odo Island to try to investigate what's happening. Something in the sea is ruining the fishing, killing all of the fish. The fishermen are not catching anything. A storm strikes the island, and the reporter's helicopter is destroyed, and 
some homes and pe- homes are destroyed, people are killed, livestock are killed. And they're like, oh, this must have just been a terrible typhoon. But many of the villagers are like, no, there was a monster. There was something mm-hmm. there. Um, eventually, those, those you know, people on Odo Island travel to Tokyo asking for disaster relief. They send out some people to help. And one of the people they send is a paleontologist. Um, and that paleontologist is able to deduce, yo, this is a footprint. And there's a trilobite in this footprint. Trilobites are hella dead. So I'm thinking this is a dinosaur. Yeah. And he's clearly radioactive because everything in this. And again, like we talked about with minus one, the casualness with which they treat. (laughs) Oh, these Geiger counters sure are like dancing like there's no tomorrow, but I'm just in a, I'm just in a jacket. The guys who are carrying the Geiger counters have the kind of plasticky looking (laughs) sort of see-through white jackets on. So clearly, clearly they're protected. They don't have anything on the faces. And also, <laughs> Professor Yamane is just picking up the trilobite with his bare hands. And they're right. like, yo, doc, don't pick it up with your bare hands. And he's like, oh, yeah, let me put it in a box. <laughs> anyway, Godzilla appears. He's enormous. He's 50 meters tall. People are freaked out. He ki- He's killing ships at sea all the time. They send out some yeah, ships. Yeah, at some point, aren't they like, I don't know. I remember at some point there was well over 20 ships have been destroyed. Yeah, because they like 17, 18 get killed. So they send out 10 frigates to try to kill the monster with depth charges. And he just destroys them all because he's death. He's Godzilla. He survived H-bomb testing, which Dr. Yamane keeps bringing up over and over. I don't know how you guys think depth charges are going to kill a thing that got awakened and powered by H bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes to shore. He busts shit up, like just destroys things. Again, there's a scene that is very, you know, reminiscent of minus one where he runs into a train, picks up the train in his mouth and like is shaking it back and forth. Not quite maybe as intensely as it happens in the newer movie, but happens <laughs> anyway. Um, eventually, uh, on the, on the human side, we've got Dr. Yamane, who is the, uh, the paleontologist. He has a daughter whose name is Emiko, who is in love with Ogata, who is one of the like ship salvager dudes. He, he basically works for the shipping company whose ships were destroyed at the start of the film and they want to get married. Problem is Emiko is technically engaged to Dr. Sarazawa who is a younger colleague of her dad, who like has a young family friend who like, you know, sometimes you just like marry people when your parents are like, what have you got married to this person? So they're like engaged, even though they don't really seem to like each other or be in love with each other. She goes over to break off her engagement with him so that she can marry Ogata instead. And he's like, hey, do you want to see what I've been working on? It's a thing I call the oxygen destroyer. I wonder what that does. <laughs> and uh, she gets freaked out by it. So forgets to say, oh, by the way, we're going to break up because I want to marry someone else. But he demands that she keep it a secret. And then after, so Godzilla's come on shore one time. Japan freaks out. They're like, what if we make an enormous electrified fence? And they do that. It doesn't work. And that is when he starts deploying his atomic breath. The famous atomic breath is here. 
and is just burning people alive in the streets, setting the entire city of Tokyo aflame, essentially. Mm -hmm. This is maybe the most harrowing part of the film is the second attack by Godzilla because, like, it just feels like absolute bedlam, absolute chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. People are dying left and right, cowering in fear. There is this one scene where this mom is, like, clutching her three children to herself as Godzilla is just destroying everything about them, and then you never see those people again. So we know how that goes. Oh, but no. Even more than that, isn't that the mom who specifically says to the kids, we'll go where your daddy went soon? Yes, that's exactly what she says. We're going to go be with dad soon. Yeah, because clearly dad's already dead. Yeah. And she knows they're toast. I mean, that was, that was a, again, it, it's, there's these little things like that, that are so gut wrenching and really powerful yeah. That take it out of that, you know, just a silly, goofy monster movie and really, again, drive home. No, this is a serious movie. And just like in Minus One, it's taking time to put in those little scenes and does it quite well in a way that tells the human story yeah. of this monster that is just fucking up Tokyo. Yeah. And so he leaves. And the next day, it cuts to a a hospital or a shelter or something where Emiko is trying to volunteer to help people. Ogata comes to find her. And, like, it's crowded. There's just people all over the hallways. People are maimed. There's dead bodies everywhere. The the survivors are suffering suffering from radiation sickness. So, like, clearly, clearly evoking the nuclear bombs of nine years previous. Like this is exactly what we're seeing here. And so Emiko is distraught by what is happening. Understandably. So, so she tells Ogata about what Sarazawa has been researching. So they rush to his place to convince him. You have got to use this against this thing. It's the only, it's the only thing we have. And Sarazawa rightfully says, I can't do this because if I do, it will be the new thing. There was an A-bomb. We saw what it did. We've now moved on to hydrogen bombs, H-bombs, that are 10 times more powerful than the atomic bombs that destroyed our very country. And this is more powerful than those. If I do this, it's game over. Everyone, every country will want these. And they're like, but what else are we going to do? And so Emiko starts sobbing, and Sarazawa burns his notes and says, okay, okay, we'll do it but it's only being set off this once. So they go and find Godzilla sleeping in Tokyo Bay under the water. Sarazawa and Ogata um, get into the goofiest looking diving suits. But I guess, (laughs) you know, they hadn't invented scuba, I guess, by 1954, but they really look goofy. Um, Even though you can tell these are real dudes underwater. And it's like, I don't know that I would trust being underwater in that thing, but okay. Right. they go under the water. Uh, Sarazawa convinces Ogata, oh, it's working. You Let's head back up. Ogata, like, pulls the thing, so they pull him back up. Sarazawa cuts, the, cuts his lines, sets it off. Because he's taken the secret of the oxygen destroyer to his grave. Mm-hmm. And Godzilla is killed. Like you said, he is 
clearly in pain. He's thrashing. He surfaces for a bit. He goes back under, and then he dissolves into bones, which then dissolve into nothing. And then, like, <laughs> there's this really jarring cut, and it felt so purposeful to me where, like, it cuts to the to the surface, and the boats are out there, and there's, like, this radio guy who's like, and everyone is filled with joy and peace knowing that Godzilla has been killed and we're all safe. And then it cuts back to the other boat where Dr. Yamane and Ogata and Emiko are all seating, seated, and they all just look like, did we win? Like, Godzilla's gone, but, like... It's this quiet, sad moment. And Ogata says to Emiko, you know, Dr. Serizawa said that, you know, that he wants us to be happy. And they look at each other and you can see in that look, it's like, the fuck does that mean? Like, how do you be happy after this? And then it's like, the end. (laughs) It's so good and so bleak at the end. It's so, and like, it ends with Dr. Yamane saying, if we keep testing nuclear bombs, there's going to be more of this. And then it just cuts. <laughs> and that's how it ends. Yeah. It's re- Here's the thing. People think this is just a goofy dude in a suit. And is it a goofy suit? Yeah, it doesn't look particularly good. It looks <laughs> the real cheap. The eyes are the worst. <laughs> the eyes are... Whenever it does a close-up on the face and it's not the suit, but the like animatronics, it's dog shit. It does not look good. But the way that it's cut, the like really stark imagery of it being in black and white which means they can really lean into the darks and the lights just make it really evocative and like you said just pensive and sad and scary in spots and just just a really 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 good movie yeah yeah so there are a few things that i kind of wrote down um that uh, that jumped out at me and one of these is um, I, I think that the miniature work in this movie is cool. Like I like it. I appreciate it. And can you always tell when they switch to miniatures? Of course. Yeah. But honestly, you look at that and you go, okay, this is 70 years ago. And that stuff looks so much better than, oh, let's look at uh, Star Wars episode one. Yeah. And it's overload of CGI. Like, honestly, this 1954 movie looks hella better than that because, and this is one of the things Gareth and I talked about, those practical effects hold up. They do. And yeah, you can tell that these are miniature fire trucks that are (laughs) running into things and tipping over. And you can tell when they, when it's, you know, it's miniature boats in a relatively miniature because you look at it, you're just like, well, those are, those are not sea waves. That's, yeah, you know, waves, <laughs> this is like wave, a kiddie pool look that we're different. Jiggling. Yeah. Waves look different when they're that big hitting an actual boat that size than it is when the boat is the size of my ring gutter regatta. But again, you go, but given what they were working with, it looks good. And you watch it and you know, it's from 1954, but it's not like you're never taken out of the movie by those things. You don't, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that the, the miniature work, like you said, is just really, really impressive. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, and you, you had kind of mentioned, you know, we've got the doctor in Godzilla minus one and it was interesting how he, as we 
talked about in that is like the beacon of hope in that movie. And you've got Sarazawa in this movie who is like the brooding, mysterious, oh, moody yeah. guy who lost an eye in the war. And, you know, Ogata at some point in makes a in comment in passing about how, you know, oh, it was too bad he lost his eye. But, you know, he's, he's, he's a very different type of character uh, yeah. in this movie. Um, and, and I, I thought that the relationships between the characters were pretty solid. And, you know, there's this one dude from Odo Island who kind of looks like teenager ish, who just sort of gets adopted <laughs> into Dr. Yumana's family and is like hanging out with him the rest of the movie, because you get the impression that, that Godzilla probably like stepped on the house where his family on Odo Island was. Yeah. And, I mean, his whole family is dead. Like his yeah. house is one of the ones that is destroyed by the typhoon slash Godzilla and his whole family is dead. So he basically becomes the little brother sidekick to Ogata, the, the male lead of this film. Yeah. You know, and, and again, they do such a good job of, of kind of giving us these relationships and making sure that we don't ever lose sight of the humanity of the story that is being told. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's impressive. I think that lesser movies, well, no, I don't think that I know that lesser movies have failed to do that because it can be, it can be tough. If you get distracted by all the fire and the things that are getting destroyed and guys, look, Godzilla's a dick. Like he really, oh, yeah. really is a dick and he just oh, goes yeah. after Tokyo. And it's one of these things where if we didn't have those little moments intercut again, callback that you could see in minus one, you've got the reporters in kind of the tower instead mm -hmm. of on top of the building in this and they're reporting and Godzilla's coming at them. And you know, the guy just straight up is like, this is it. You know, not going to make it. He's coming at us. And, and basically, I don't remember exactly what he says, but you know, this kind of message that's like, I, I, I'm not going to survive this. I hope some of you do. And then Godzilla just boom, takes yeah. out the tower and it's really bleak. It really is. But it is again, Godzilla goes on a rampage and, um, okay. I'm going to compare this to another movie. You think about the final battle between Zod and Superman in Man of Steel. Uh-huh. And how much destruction there is. Yeah. And a lot. again, in the hands of, I'm sorry, a lesser director, you've got Zack Snyder who is trying to give us little moments of humanity because we see people, but the focus is so much on the damage and look at how big this is and the kind of disaster porn aspect of it, that it just is annoying and feels too long and feels nauseating. Whereas while well, this scene where Godzilla is just rampaging on Tokyo, I don't want to say it feels too long, but you want it to end not because you're just like, okay, we get it. That's how I felt in Man of Steel. It mm -hmm. was like, I get it. Just can you, can you cut through this please and just get to the end? Cause I'm tired of this. 
But in this, I want it to end because of the tension it's building because of those little glimpses of the human cost of what is happening to this and how authentic they feel. You want it to be over because you want these people to stop suffering. Exactly. And I think that's an incredibly important difference between some disaster movies and, and what they managed to pull off here, you know, and that I think was probably one of the things that struck me most was what a good job they did of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. The thing, the thing that I think is most interesting about it and what makes the metaphor so powerful here. And it's a, it, it is in some ways similar to what we saw in minus one, but in some ways it just takes it in a different direction because minus one was so much about the interiority of like survivor's guilt and mm-hmm. Godzilla was like an external, you know, example of the internal war going on inside of, uh, uh, I can't think of his name now, the main character in minus one. But in this one, like, this is, he is a metaphor for nuclear weaponry that is exactly about the work of man. Like, why does he become the monster who comes and destroys everything? Because of the H-bomb testing, a.k.a. because of weaponry. So he is yeah. also a weapon. He is incomprehensible man-made tragedy. tragedy. That's what Godzilla is here. And so taking it as a way of saying, this is what happened to our country nine years ago. Here is how we are trying to process the like act and the grief of like having gone through this not that long ago, like within living memory of literally every single one of those actors. Every one of them was alive in 1945 when those bombs were dropped. So like this is their lived history. This is their lived experience. And so externalizing that as this force, as this this man-made creature, this man-made tragedy that like, comes and destroys so many people's lives is like it's not a subtle metaphor but it is like a very powerful (laughs) one and very purposeful one yeah it is well i'm really glad you enjoyed this movie i i hadn't seen it in a decade and i watched it and i was wrapped for a hundred for an hour and 36 minutes i was just like this movie's fucking great i cannot yeah. believe how well they did it the first time out the gate um so i'm really glad that you enjoyed it and and you know i i'm glad that it sounds like gareth enjoyed it even if it's old-timey sensibilities might not hit as well as they do for old people like me um because <laughs> i just think it's really powerful and like I love that Godzilla can be this like meaningful, contemplative, sad um, horror story. But I also love that he sometimes he has a kid named Mania and he teach kid how to blow smoke rings. <laughs> like he contains multitudes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it there. Um, Thank you all for listening. Uh, It's always a pleasure to chat with my brother, and I hope that you all enjoy listening to the show. If you have any comments you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at feedback at themiddleofculture.com. 
Um, or you can leave us a review or um, give us some stars on your podcast platform of choice. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. And until then, have a great one. And I hope that a large monster does not come and destroy your city. Me too. That would be a bummer.